out to the mound. You've got a base open. You've got Edwin Encarnacion at the plate. And this is where Buck has to rely upon all that experience on just how to set up the rest of this inning. The Jimenez pitch. Fly ball deep left field. Yes, sir. The Blue Jays are going to Texas. Quick, who won the two wildcard games? Toronto and not the Mets. <laughs> Shoot, I watched a lot of it too. Man, uh, baseball playoffs are too good. Too good. Yeah. Those are the two best wildcard games ever. I mean, in back-to-back Why days. can I not think of who played? I watched It was the Giants. The Giants, that's right, yeah. yeah. I, uh, you know how sometimes you'll have um, – we had that story when we told on the podcast where I was like talking to someone about the Anchorman the the anchorman thing in Hartford while you were yes. getting the car. Yes. Well, I had a similar thing the other day with the Mets. Okay. Because someone was asking who was playing in the wild card games, and I said that one of the teams was the Nine Mets. Okay. And the person just kept looking at me. And like, <laughs> the Nine Mets. <laughs> and they didn't get it. They were wondering why I was saying Nye. <laughs> That's a Simpsons reference for yeah. everyone out there. Uh, it is season six, episode twenty-eight. What'd you think of the show last week? You were down in basement. It was great. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, both the guests, uh, Brand, Kyle Brand, Kyle Brand, yeah. and uh, the critics, Seppenwall. Seppenwall. Yeah, he, dude, that feels like on another podcast you could have him on for hours. Mm-hmm. Seppenwall, and Brant was great. I said he, he he felt a little bit like Dave early on told us he's like take your your own character and kind of like. Boost at ten percent. Like, he does that, and Brant mm-hmm. has like a character. You can tell he's on a little bit, but he was also into it. And then like it just happened. Anything he'd start to riff on, like you were into too, like wrestling or whatever. And he's I thought it was funny how he kind of dug that you knew about the training regimen of uh, <laughs> Bad News Brown. Bad News Brown. <laughs> he and he he was great all week too. Tweets, retweets, and yeah, so yeah. is Seppenwall. Seppenwall's selling a book, so you don't get as excited that he's retweeting. I mean, you're as ex- appreciative, but you kind of expect those a little bit more because right. the person's trying to sell whereas you know brant he's not the interview he doesn't need us anymore i was but listening to corolla's podcast it was either yesterday's or today's and they had uh uh the news girl gina started talking about the top 100 tv shows and but the it was rolling the rolling stone, stone, stone one. yeah yeah, yeah. that's not as good i agree with what Seppenwall said too much. once you start to throw in like yep. the tonight show and like how do you compare the match those? game is on right, the list right. yeah it's silly it's like too much separate really categories the, the match game is better than ed Right. You know, like I didn't make the list. And that, that was one cool thing about the interview with Seppenwall last week, too. He got some airtime for Ed. Yeah. And he knew it, too. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. That's the thing. Like, even shows that he's like, like, he didn't love Ed as much as you did, no. clearly, but he's still like, no knew one does, probably. Carol. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he knew the, knew the players. So, yeah, he, he was great. Yeah. Don and I probably would have passed on sex with teenagers in college if it was on the night Ed was on. <laughs> yeah, the first... Legal teenagers, I mean. Right. Yeah, you know, college-age teenagers. Right, 19-year-olds, yes. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, was we needed stuff. to watch Ed. We could not. <laughs> and we also, in college, we got ship tapes of The Soprano shipped to the apartment. Remember? Yeah, because we had, like... Did we have HBO we didn't. 2 or something like that? We didn't that? have the HBO at Sopranos, so that shit needed okay. to be mailed to us. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so like, it would go on on Sunday, and by Tuesday, the mail would come with the package. The VHS. Of, yeah. The VHS of that week's Sopranos. 
All right, let's uh, let's do this. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. On the count of three. One. Alrighty, I'll kick it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> Did we just become best friends. Yep. All right. So, like I said. Baseball playoffs are here. I kind of joked with you before about about whether or not you could uh, name, name the, the teams. Now, can you name the, the four series that are left no, within the DS? No, definitely not. All right. So in the American League, we got we got we got some good ones. We got Cleveland, mm-hmm. coached by Terry Francona, okay, against Boston, and of course Francona was the manager of Boston when they won the World Series. And then Texas against somebody. Texas against Toronto, Toronto which is basically the baseball version of the, the 90s Detroit, oh, okay. Detroit versus Colorado. I heard people were excited about this because this will be the first time they play since the brawl. Right, which is why I'm equating it to okay. Colorado and Detroit. Remember? Right, okay. Once the one guy got his face caved That's in, right. they would play, it seemed like then they'd play every year and you'd get pumped up to hopefully see someone else's face get caved in. Yep. But after that first time, it never really happened. No. Because the stakes are too high. Nothing's going to happen in Toronto and... No one's gonna risk getting a starter suspended in the playoffs or something. Yeah, stakes are too high. Yeah, they'll save it for the first time they meet next year. Yeah, but that the game one's actually going on for that right now, and we'll talk to Jeff Passan in a minute, who's live in Cleveland, uh, getting ready to cover game one of Cleveland and Boston. Uh, and then in the National League, we got the Cubs, who can't be happy that it's the Giants who emerged. Uh, from that, because that means at, about least, pitching, right? at least one game of Bumgarner, if not two. And Bumgarner, I mentioned this in the past interview, but I'll mention it to you, Don. So they showed a graphic yesterday mm-hmm. in like the the eighth inning. And at that point, it's over 20 innings over the course of two wildcard games and game seven of the World Series that Bumgarner shut the other team out. Wow. So he shut out the Pirates. For however many innings in a wild card game, shut out the Royals for nine innings in Game Seven of the World Series. Now he's shutting out the match. So they show the streak, and he's over twenty innings. Now they show second place. I can't remember who it is, and then third place in the history of Major League Baseball is Jack Morris with ten innings, and he did that in one game. <laughs> so there's wow. that's it. It's 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 wow. Baumgartner, someone who at a pissed I can't remember, and then a guy who basically has one game of scoreless baseball in an elimination game wow. in the history of baseball that's how that's how good he's been in the playoffs and the, if you're the cubs and you got 108 years of demons you do not <laughs> want any part of that and now i remember talking early, like midway through the season that their their top three guys are legit yeah they have great pitching so they, it's not what the cubs wanted to see for sure you know and game three is arietta Baumgartner. so buckle up for that and then the nats Played the Dodgers, and Game One has maybe the best pitching matchup in the playoffs of Scherzer and Kershaw. Now Kershaw has been the anti Bumgarner; he hasn't been able to get it done. And the whole first two chapters of Molly Knight's book is about Clayton Kershaw's failures in the playoffs. Yeah. You know, and now he's got another chance. Uh, we said goodbye to Vin Scully. Uh, speaking of the Dodgers, he finished. He's not going to do playoffs. He said. He didn't want to not know when his last game was. He was just going to call that last game at Dodger Stadium, then call that last game against the Giants on hmm. Sunday, and he's done. No playoffs for Vin. 
60 plus years he called baseball for the Dodgers. Yeah, people, I mean, if you started today, right? <laughs> 2016. Let's call it 2015 for math's sake. Add 60 years to that. What year would you retire? 2075. Damn. That seems like a long yeah. time from now. Yeah, it does. So props to How old was he when he started? He was in his 20s. Wow. He was in his early 20s. Good for him. Yeah. So that probably wouldn't happen now. And that's that's like I mean that's a downplay anything the guys that do it now do but that's like when it mattered like when a lot of people yeah oh everyone's listening on the radio they could yeah. only listen on the radio so yeah so we'll miss Vince Scully he's, is he the last legend. of he's the last probably of like that that era in baseball like like those gods what, of what Rick Jenneratt is to hockey sure and Harry and uh and, and Bob Cole you know Rick Jenneratt and Bob Cole uh, guys like that there's still a couple of hockey guys left but I think baseball you know the Harry Carey's and yeah. Jack Buck and Vince Scully. And even Dick Emberg, who called baseball for the Padres forever. We might know him more as a football guy, especially mm-hmm. in Buffalo, because he called so many of those Bills games because he was like the head AFC guy for so right. long. So he called so many of the famous Bills games. I love Dick Emberg, too. And he retired this week as well. Uh, football. Brady's back. Yep. Uh, they got to feel good. Hey, 3-1. and one, Absolutely. They'll take it. It almost seemed watching that game, and Bills fans aren't going to be happy with me, but almost like they showed up and they knew that they got Houdini out of that quarterback once and it wasn't going <laughs> to happen again. And it was almost like they kind of just took the L a little bit. That They just kind of showed up knowing that they just probably weren't winning. Yeah, I might get too pumped up over that win. I mean, the Bills got me back a little oh, bit. Oh, I'd still be pumped about it. No, I'm but I'm just saying from the New England, I don't think they're – I think they're just like, ah, 3-1 with Brady, we'll take it. Right, it's easy to be a pessimistic Bills fan and look at their two wins – and think, okay, these are the uh, cup half full guys going to say, well, if you were two and two and you won your first two and lost your second two to those teams, that's fine. I mean, that's, those are teams you're going to lose to. Those are teams you're going to beat. But you flip it around, but the Cardinals don't look as good as maybe they are supposed to be, and the Patriots were down to a third-string guy with a busted hand. You know who doesn't look as good, and we we both call this, is Carolina. Yeah. Carolina is just not the team that they were last year. You know who almost kind of took their place? I mean, minus the MVP quarterback is Minnesota. I mean, that, that defense looks unreal in Minnesota. Right. But anyway, if you're a Bill, uh, I, the Bills had me so pissed, like almost in like who's the college quarterback to draft mode after the first two games. But now you look at their schedule, and it's like, boy, if you can just get to like eight and five. It's a mixed bag, the schedule. Yeah, it's and brutal. There's some tough stretches. It's brutal. Like, stretches. There's like a three-game stretch where it's like New England – Seattle, somebody else tough. Like, just you're probably going to lose all three in a row. But then the end of the season, the toughest game in there is Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh is not exactly – I mean, one week they look like a world beater. The next – or the week before that, they're getting crushed by Philly. So, if you can get to a point where you've got, like, seven or – like, if you're, like, seven and five, eight and four, which sounds like a huge thing, but it's really just winning all the games except for those three nasty ones in the middle. Like, they've got a real good shot at ten wins still. I, I told everyone I I know what they're just going to do enough to punch you in the gut in December again probably but yeah that's 16 years at of least, history on your side at least it's uh at least there's some there's some optimism I'm I've got some optimism back did Eli Manning throw Beckham under the bus and if you think he did are you okay with it you know what is weird about Beckham is like he's real showy and he's real whatever but he's competitive and he wants to win and if 
Tom Brady. I'm not going to make this a race thing, but it's it's more of like a receiver thing. Like receivers are kind of seen as divas, and maybe he is a little bit. But it does he can't see- be mounting down on a field like he has. Well, no, now that's right. at least three times in his career. Right, he could have been kicked out all three times, maybe. Yeah, for sure. It, that's the part when you're putting yourself above yeah. your team, and but- I think that's what Eli's talking about. You and know, that's fine. if we're talking about a touchdown celebration, it's a different conversation. Right, right. But I mean, if you're continually getting 15 yard flags for pouting because the DB's playing you tough or whatever, right? I mean, that's just. He needs to mature a bit, I think. And that happens a lot with receivers. What they can't do is pull a Bruins. Just get rid of him. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can't just People have said, him. People, I can't remember who said it. Maybe Boomer Esiason or somebody is like, careful how you handle that kid. Like, you don't want to just – you don't want to totally alienate him to the point, like you're saying, where you've got to let him go, and then you just – Yeah, they can't let that does happen. does what he does. Uh, Cam's still in concussion protocol. They don't play till Monday, but it's looking doubtful for him. Uh, obviously, Julio Jones had one of the great games in the history of wide Jeez. receivers. That guy's scary. The week before against the Saints, he had like one catch. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, I heard a stat that said something. This is on a fantasy. Uh, Matt Barry had this stat. It said something like the only player with like at least four catches and 60 yards every game, I think is like Larry Fitzgerald, who was not having a monster season. But, yeah, even Julio Jones with a week like that had a bum week the week before so and it was a week every fantasy guy's like yes Start Julio Jones. saints yeah all their dbs are hurt yep and i talked a lot about the saints last week so i won't hey they got to win is what they needed to do and usually you see the scheduling you're like off oh, fuck early bye mm-hmm. they needed a bye because they just they need players back is carolina next week or? yeah yeah at home and they, it, they look at they got to win that game they got to win yep. a home game they got to win a home division game i mean that's just yeah, you win that game, you get it. Just keep pace with Atlanta. You get them again, and everyone in the NFC is one and three. One and three is almost not that bad of a record in the NFC, right? And the whole the whole league is one and three. Yep. So I mean, nine wins could get you a wild card. So Atlanta's not a not a seven hundred fifty percent. They're not. Percent yeah, team. they're not. They're as not going to win seventy five percent of their yeah. games. So so. All right. Uh, last thing. So the Oilers named Connor McDavid captain. He's nineteen years old. He's the youngest captain in the history of the NHL. Yeah. I ask you this, Don. Was there any reason to put that kind of unnecessary pressure on a player who maybe has more pressure than anyone in the league right now? No, I'm kind of... New arena, first year. I listened to your test podcast. I mean, it's not a secret. You've got a yeah, Twitter yeah. account out there and everything. Yeah. So I think I fall somewhere between you and Dater. Um, I don't know that it means nothing, yeah. It means nothing to me, necessarily. It means less to people who didn't play. Like, Anthony listened to that test show. Well, that's like, what I was going to say. And he's like, Dater's totally wrong about captains. Well, he's I think like, it's going to mean something to the people in the room that think they deserve it. We won the national championship because Andrew Miller was the best captain in the country. Yeah. And he's like, we would have never, never got through that five-game losing streak if we didn't have as strong of a captain as Andrew Miller. We would have never touched the Frozen Four. As a younger guy, how does he fall on most? Like, is he... Like you're more old school, like and not like away from the analytics. He's he's younger. I don't know how he falls though. Like as far as that stuff goes, he can tend to be a I played the game guy. Okay, you know what I mean. And he he draws from personal experience. He played at a high level. I mean, I guess essentially the second highest, sure, the highest non pro level. Is his coach? His coach is a little old school. Yeah, a very old school defense. And his junior uh, coach was as well too. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that could be where he gets some of that from. Look. I'm not. I don't think it really. 
I bet you if there was a study done, it doesn't matter a lot in terms of wins and losses. Well, take, but I do believe that I do believe him when he says it matters in the room. Take your focus away from the idea of the captain for a second mm-hmm. and put it on Connor McDavid. Does he need this? You no. know what I mean? Think of no. all the shit that Crosby took because Crosby had to be the one to go to the refs all the time. Sure. And it became this narrative of, oh, Crosby's a bitch. Right. Crosby's a whiner. No, Crosby was being a captain. Yep. But Crosby had all eyes on him all the time. And that's going to be McDavid now. Pierre Maguire said on something today, I, don't, I didn't catch where he was talking about. I read a tweet that he said in public today that he's the second best player in the league behind Sidney Crosby right now. He's played, what, 30 games? Those are the kind of <laughs> expectations on this guy. Yeah, no. I, does he need this, too? That's where I kind of agree with Dater, too, is regardless of how much you think it matters, I think it's the type of thing where it's like we are going to sell jerseys with C's on them now. You know what I mean? Like, And I don't know why the coach would care about that. I'm sure ultimately the coach is the one who makes that decision. And it's dumb because you're always going to sell McDavid jerseys. Well, sure. And people who already have one are just going to go get a C sewn on. Right, you know what sure. I mean. Like yeah. you're always gonna, he's always gonna have the highest selling jersey in your building. You yeah, it is a weird thing. David jersey sells. And now that, I, now that, that I said, I almost don't agree with it because, like you said, even if it's somebody else, his face is gonna be the one all the, over the arena. And anyway, what does it do so. to the other guys who've been drafted first or second overall the last six years in that? Right, team? I think I worry less about what like Nail Yakupov thinks. Yeah, maybe him. But there's but gotta. What be... about Hall? Who's been great for them? Yeah, I don't know. Does he deserve it more? Is there some veteran on defense? Like, again, I'm not in the more? room. Right. You know, and I do think that sometimes we as fans think people should be captains that aren't because we're not in the room. We don't. Well, Dater took the side on that podcast. I don't know if it's ever going to come out or whatever. Probably not. But he took the side on that podcast essentially that said it doesn't matter. Uh, the coach doing this shows that it doesn't matter. But then he also said that he covered Colorado. Yes. He said it mattered to Ryan O'Reilly. It did. When it he mattered and Duchesne. So I, that, that's kind of where I stand. I don't think it matters one bit in terms of wins and losses. And Anthony has way more experience and can tell me why I'm wrong with that. But I do think it will matter to people in that room. And I think it's going to wait. I think it's going to matter to the development of Connor McDavid. It could, yeah. And the perception of him around the league. Because he's going to be, have to be the one every time someone gets tripped that has to go to the ref and say, why didn't you call tripping there? Sure. This, and this people target. faced kid. Yeah, and people, right. tar- people don't like that. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, I tease. I'm going to be all over anything he ever does wrong just to protect my guy. But I'm going to be all sure. over every right. chance I get. And they're opening him up to unnecessary chances. All right. Here's what we got today. We're going to take a break. We're going to go to Jeff Passan. Jeff is eagerly waiting for us in Cleveland. He's waiting right now by the phone (laughs) in his hand for us to call so he can talk to us about the baseball playoffs and then go cover game one of the Indians and Red Sox. Then I'll be back for a quick book club update. If you can see the room right now, we're surrounded by books. Yeah. I mean, they are literally everywhere. So we have a lot to cover in the book club. And then we're going to talk to Mike Pereira. So we can take one of the books and clear it out of the room. There we go. And then uh, Don and I will be back for one last thing. All right, our next guest is from Cleveland and is live from Cleveland. He's a graduate of Syracuse. He's the lead baseball columnist for Yahoo Sports and the first guest ever to appear on this show. 
He's up to number 13 today, O'Warm Sportscasters. Welcome to Jeff Passan. What's up, Jeff? What's happening? How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. It's October. Playoff baseball. Oh, the last few days and were fantastic. Traveling, travel, and traveling from city to city and being a nomad. The last few days were fantastic. I mean, for a guy just watching on the couch, it was two great days of baseball. Yeah, those were two. I mean, those are two really good games. Well pitched games and uh, well played games, and you have you know uh, memorable moments from each of them. You wrote a great column. I mean, you kill Buck for not bringing in <laughs> the closer, and you know as a. I've always told you I'm more of a fan of baseball than any team, but I have followed the Braves since I was a young kid, since when they were in their heyday, they were the only team that you could watch every day in Buffalo with thanks to TBS. So I did follow the team, and you know I felt this way a few years ago uh, when Kimbrough was standing in the dugout in L.A. with his hands on his hips while Yasiel Puig was taking whoever was on the mound yard and just thinking like, why do they do this to themselves, these managers? Why do they do it? And it, and it happened again to Buck the other day. Yeah, it did. Uh, I was, I mean, I was sitting in the press box, uh, you know, next to a bunch of other writers and and TV people, and just thinking. And and you can look at my Twitter account at the time too. What the hell is going on here? Like, I would expect this from. I mean, you know, Ned Yost. I would expect it from Ron Washington. I would expect it from Freddie Gonzalez. I would, you know, the guys, the guys who in the past have mismanaged their bullpen. Right. I did not expect this from Buck Showalter. And, you know, I went and looked back, and on July 31st, there was a tie game where Zach Britton came in on the road in the ninth inning and also pitched the tenth inning. And it was against the freaking Blue Jays. Like, it was the exact same scenario. Uh, a little different, you know, different times in the order. But, uh, yeah, I could see why you would keep Brad Brock in and, and go with Darren O'Day, who destroys right-handed hitters. Uh, but when you got to the 11th and you brought in Brian Dunsing and then came with Ubaldo Jimenez after that, that's the part where, to me, it just lost me. And, and it's indefensible. I, I've yet to see anything at this point why Buck Showalter would do that. And I think it's the type of thing that's going to stick with him for a long time, as it should. And when you get to first and third, and almost the only chance you have to get out of that inning with your season still alive is a ground ball double play, and you have the best ground ball yep. double play pitcher yep. on top of it. It makes it even worse. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Zach Britton's got an 80% ground ball rate, the highest in Major League Baseball history. Zach Britton's given up one run in his last 57, one earned run in his last 57 innings. I mean, the, there are any any number of numbers you can throw out there that would make this completely understandable why he would use him, and, and to me, none why you would hold him back. I mean, it's bad enough to let Jimenez in there ahead of Britton. Uh, to have Jimenez in there at the end against Encarnacion when Britain's just wasting away there, uh, how do you not summon him? I mean, it's it's not a better late than never scenario, but at least give yourself a chance at that point with him. Right, and I've heard a lot of people saying, well, now look at yesterday, the Mets, they bring their closer in, and that doesn't work either because he gives up a three-run home run. But 
any Mets fan will tell you that they'd much rather go down with their guy giving up the home run. You know, they would have killed their manager had it not been uh, had it not been Familia who gave up that home run, and it was someone else. They would have been killing killing him. So yeah, yeah. And, and look, it, it, Zach Britton may have given up runs like that. That's well within the realm of possibility. But to me, this is more process than outcome. And and the process says you put in your guy who gives you the best chance to to win. In the case of Juris Familia coming in, he was their best pitcher available at that point. And I don't blame him for doing that. The only, the only question is why would you bring him in to, to face the bottom of the order like that? Well, it turns out that the bottom of the order is the part that did the damage. I've been trying to think about Madison Bumgarner a little bit and put what he's been done into perspective, and I thought that Fox did a pretty good job. Was the game on Fox yesterday? Oh, no, ESPN. ESPN did a good job. They put a graphic yes. up. Put a graphic up yesterday late in the game, and it said scoreless innings by a pitcher in an elimination – consecutive scoreless innings by a pitcher in an elimination game. And Bumgarner was at the top, and then there was someone. I forget who. And then in third place was Morris with 10 innings, and that was in one game. So, I mean, that's <laughs> – <laughs> So that's pretty much it. There's yeah, it just, this guy who like shut it to him out. It just, game. it just it just goes to, it just goes to show you how how incredible Bumgarner is. Oh. and like Bumgarner, Bumgarner makes me question whether uh, whether there is a clutch gene. I, I feel like you know I've been conditioned as someone who buys into most of what sabermetrics uh, and analysis has to offer that. There is nothing out there that that separates one guy from another. I, I think sometimes that we fall into this trap where, because there's not something quantifiable, uh, we we just don't buy it. And I, I do wonder if there is something with Madison Bumgarner that who, who's a great pitcher. Don't get me wrong, but that allows him to to take his greatness. Uh, to the proverbial next level when October comes around. I don't know if it is competitiveness. Uh, I don't think his stuff gets any better. Uh, I don't know if it's the ability to to focus uh, or or mental acuity for which we do not give him credit. But it's something there that is intangible that uh, that has come out, and it's it's pretty damn glorious to see. Now he's only going to get to pitch once against the Cubs, probably, assumably. Uh, but yeah, I was going to say, you, you sure about that? Right. <laughs> no, I'm not. But, but as a Cubs fan, I'm hoping it's only once because he and the Giants in general make me nervous enough. If you're a Cubs fan, you you you're a little nervous today that that was the team who emerged from that game, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I would have much rather faced the Mets if I were them. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the Cubs have had a fantastic year, but now they have to bear the burden of those 100 years because plenty of Cubs teams have gone. 108 years, Steve. Don't right. get it wrong. Come right. on. You're, you're underselling them. 100 plus, I should say, because that's almost an extra decade to that, too. Uh, yeah. I mean, they got to bear that burden now. And again, you know, you're talking about sabermetrics and things, and I know there's no metric for that, but it's got to be something. It's got to. No? Yeah, I, here's the thing. How how can how can they bear the burden for something that 
preceded them living by more than three quarters of a century. I mean, I, I suppose that, you know, when John Lester signed with the Cubs, he did it in part because he wanted to be there when they won, because he wanted to be a part of that. So I guess the inverse of that, if you want to appreciate the spoils, is that you have to acknowledge, uh, you know, the, the sadness and uh, the, the idea that, you know, maybe if we don't win, the, there was something here to it. I don't think there's a curse. I don't think no, there's I'm anything cosmic holding. There's nothing cosmic holding the Cubs back from winning the World Series. But uh, will the weight of of a, a century plus uh, be be too much of a bear for them? I I don't think so. I don't. I mean, the, certainly it will be on their minds. But I think it'll be on their minds as much because people around them, whether it's media. Uh, or otherwise, are constantly reminding them of it. I think one of the things I'm most excited to see in the postseason this year is I want to see Kershaw get back on the hill and see if he can bring his dominance from the regular season to the postseason because he's had a tough time so far. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that, man. I am with you on that. I just want to I want to see him and David Price go uh, go out and throw you know two hit shutouts. Yeah, just to shut people up, and and I'm I'm not rooting for uh, for any particular team. Don't get me wrong, but it, it's just the idea that you know. I guess it's almost like if Bumgarner has something, can someone not have it? And I want to believe that that guys have have that something somewhere in them and that they're not just dogs in the postseason, that they don't cow to the pressure. Maybe, you know, if I believe in the Bumgarner thing, maybe maybe fundamentally I have to believe in the other part, that there are pitchers who just aren't aren't as keen in the postseason. And, and I don't want to think Clayton Kershaw and David Price are two of those guys, because they've been so good during the regular season. Why would they be? Right, and then I think there's guys like Maddox, too. Like, I always hear people shitting on him about his postseason, but off the top of my head, I can think of like five games he dominated, and how many pitchers can you say have like five dominant, huge playoff wins under the resume? He just went out there every the people, year, year the, after the year. People, after did year. people really give Maddox grief about his postseason? Yeah, I saw it today. Who? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when we talk about people, we're talking in generalities. I mean, I, I guess I didn't write anyone's name down, but yes, people absolutely give Maddox. Uh, say that he wasn't nearly as good in the postseason as he was in the regular season. Well, I mean that that's a that's a pretty damn high bar right there. If you if you just go and look at the the ERAs, his playoff ERA was pretty much identical to to what his regular season ERA was over his career. Um, did he have any of those? Uh, no, not say any. Did he have as many brilliant masterpieces as one might? Assume no, but not everyone's Bumgarner, man. It's it's almost like we're, uh, you know, when you measure against Bumgarner these days, it, it's an impossible standard. It's like Barry Bonds, you know, back when he was juiced to the gills. Like there was no one who could compare to him. It's like Mike Trout compared to the rest of baseball these days. Uh, Bumgarner is incomparable right now because what he's done, it's, it's unprecedented. I mean, he is the best postseason pitcher of all time. I, I have no qualms or quandaries about saying that. 
So you picked today on the record. You did pick the Cubs uh, to win it. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, so we know you're picking them to beat the Giants, and we talked a bit about that series already. And we did talk about let, being excited to see Kershaw pitch. What do you think about that series in general with the Nats and the uh, and the Dodgers? I think it's going to be a really good series. I think I picked the Nats in five, but it, it's a total coin flip for me. Uh, it doesn't get a whole lot better than Kershaw Scherzer. I mean, as much as right. we enjoyed Bumgarner, Syndergaard, Kershaw Scherzer is a, a pretty damn good follow-up to that little appetizer there. Uh, the, the big questions for me, who's going to pitch for the Nats? I mean, is it going to be Tanner Roark in game two or Gio Gonzalez? Uh, you know, is Pedro Severino going to be able to... Uh, if not replace the production of Wilson Ramos, at least uh, do a good enough job behind the plate to to have a reasonable effect. Similarly, and is Bryce Harper going to show up like Bryce Harper did last year? That 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 to me is the big big X factor for the Nationals. Do they get MVP Bryce Harper? Or do they get 2016 Bryce Harper? We all know that a lot of Cubs and Red Sox fans are like, oh man, Destiny, it's it's going to be. It's going to be the Red Sox against against Theo in the World Series. I just know it. People from both sides have been saying that for a while. But before they can get to that, they got to get through their old manager first. What do you think about you're down? You're down in Cleveland. What's the? What are your vibes? What are you thinking about Indians and Red Sox? I'm just very the the, the game one is going to be. Is this going to be posted by the time game one's happening? Uh, is it the later or the uh, the earlier game? I can't recall. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a night game. Yeah, so, so it'll be up it'll be up around when the game starts. Yeah. All right. I just didn't want to throw any anything out there where I'm going to look like. Uh, right. No, I'm I'm going to look like a moron. Full no disclosure: we're recording I, I'm, at three. I, yep. I'm I am excited. I am excited to see Trevor Bauer pitch tonight uh, because Trevor Bauer has waited a very long time for a moment like this. He has been through. Uh, quite a bit for being as young as he is. I mean, because it seems like he's he's been around for a while, we, we forget he's still only 25 years old. And he has waited for a moment like this, and he gets game one against the guy who's probably going to win the American League Cy Young. Uh, if the Indians win tonight, they're in really good shape because they've got Corey Kluber going tomorrow. And I know it's against David Price, but... Still having Kluber uh, there, and and then you get Bauer back in Game Four on short rest, and Kluber full rest on Game Five potentially in Cleveland. Uh, this is a big momentum game tonight. I I pick the Red Sox to win the series. I think the Red Sox are going to, uh, you know, I I just think their offense is, is if not unstoppable, then really really difficult to to put the emergency break on and. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be interesting tonight to see what Bauer does and how he tries to handle a lineup that uh, is even deeper than Cleveland's, which is shockingly deep itself. And then the other series is uh, Red Wings Avalanche, right? Is that what we got over there? <laughs> Do you remember God, you and your you and, you and your hockey? Man. Come on, this one is perfect. Do you remember what it was like every year when the Avalanche or the Red Wings would play in the playoffs post that hit? Mm. You're just not no. enough of a hockey guy to know that. Huh? But trust me, it's I, perfect. I'm, 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 I, I'm like the reference is way over my head. Who hit whom? Uh, it was um, it was uh, McCarty who got hit of the Red Wings by Claude Lemieux, and he got his face smashed. You don't remember? Ah, okay, okay, yes, yes, yes. Okay, now I. I, I vaguely recall 
the face smashing. I, I would yeah. not have. And then it yeah, seemed like I would not have been able to do that without you. It seemed like every year after that they met in the playoffs again, you know, and it was always like, oh boy, here they are again. And Toronto and Texas certainly have their history that feels a little hockeyish. And by the way, it's Toronto who plays in Toronto. So it was an yeah, apt analogy. I'm, I'm is my pre- point. Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty psyched. I I almost, in fact, I almost went down to to Texas for Game One instead of uh, the the plan of coming here to Cleveland, but I'm going to, I'm going to do a game, uh, game one in Cleveland and then I'm going to Chicago for two and then I'm going to head up to Toronto, uh, for game three with the, the Jays and Rangers. And that's going to be a hell of a series, Matt. They're, they're two pretty evenly matched teams. The, uh, the big thing I want to keep an eye out on is, is Roberto Osuna available and is he okay? Uh, because the Jays bullpen has been shaky with him, uh, without him though. Oof, it's a, it's a grim situation. So uh, Texas has Texas is a fascinating team to me. I mean, they're almost uh, you know they're almost thirty games over five hundred, mm-hmm. and they have a plus nine run differential on the season. They were thirty six and eleven in one run games, which is the the best in Major League Baseball history. It's pretty staggering what they were able to do in those close games, and you wonder if they can translate that into the postseason. And now the people who love the numbers think they won't be able to, right? I mean, it just screams flukiness. It does, but you know, once it happens over a full season, I mean, I, I know it's still a small sample, but I, I, I want to buy into the idea that there's something there in that it's not completely a fluke. Right, and we've seen the Royals kind of live off that the last couple of playoffs, right? Winning these close games. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Uh, the Rangers, uh, the Rangers bullpen isn't the you know it's not Herrera, Davis, Holland. I mean, don't get me wrong, but they got a bunch of power arms there. They've got Sam Dyson, they've got Matt Bush, they've got Jeremy Jeffers. You know, Tony Barnett was really good this year, shockingly. So they they've got some dudes back there, and uh, it's it's a deep enough bullpen where I think they're gonna you know they're gonna be able to win at least one series and uh, put a good scare into whoever they're facing in the ALCS because of it. I was just thinking when you were talking about that travel schedule, you got to be pissed at the Royals, huh? That must have been nice the last couple of years, having a bunch of playoff games at home. Um, you know, it's like I love seeing my family. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Who doesn't? I do. But... <laughs> I get home. I get home from the ballpark probably about two thirty or three o'clock in the morning uh, on any given night when there's a late game being played in the playoffs. And when you're home, you're expected to wake up with the kids, right? So, so you know, I, and, and also I'm home at three o'clock, but I can't fall asleep right then, especially after I've written a story. It takes it takes a little while to wind down. So when I was at home, I was getting three, three or so hours of sleep, and and that will wear on you. That will definitely wear on you over a full month. Oh, I know. So I hate being aw- I hate being away from home, but home playoff games are overrated. <laughs> we uh, one of the reasons why we're never going from one to two kids is just because because of what you're describing. I mean, it's too easy right now to tag team against her and to make sure everyone's getting oh, no. at least some sleep during the week, you know? So we're never Oh, dude. We're hey, never doing this again. Listen, li- listen. If I if I ever win the lottery, 
I'll, I'll quit writing about sports and I will go and start a website called oneanddone.org. <laughs> that, that, is, that is a public service announcement for all prospective parents out there. Just stop at one. Like, you know, China, China had it right, man. I mean, yeah. one is plenty. Oh, I it's thought you were talking lavish about the kid. I mean, there's, there, are, there are many benefits to multiple children, don't get me wrong. But damn, it's easy to just have one. Yeah, that's a nice thing about being like the last person in your group of friends to have a kid is you can see how their lives have changed after they had the second kid and how drastic oh, that yeah. was. Yeah. So yeah, we're good. One yeah. is she's a delight and that will be fine for us. Um, Jeff, Jeff Passan is our friend. He's at Jeff Passan on Twitter. Be nice to him there. No need for no need for any uh, any roughhousing. And his book. Uh, I should mention, still one of our favorites of the year, The Arm, Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports is available where books are sold. Still up in the top 20 or so in the iTunes bookstore or the iBookstore, whatever they call that. Um, And uh, let's get you out of here on this. So you're kind of away from the cycle of the book. Is it like a kid? You're never doing that again? Or... How do you feel about how it went with the arm? Uh, I would have loved for it to have sold many more copies. That would have been delightful. Uh, but, you know, I think the general reaction to it from the people who have read it uh, has been very gratifying. Not just the reviews, which were all shockingly really good, but most of the people who have read it have had very nice things to say about it. And I'm proud of it, you know. I think it was took a long time and it took a lot of energy and uh it, you know, it takes me away from more important things, uh, like like spending time with kids and so that that's always a that's always you know, you, you wanna you wanna balance your life as as well as you possibly can. And it throws an imbalance into that. Uh but in the end I feel like it will do people good. And that to me is a really important aspect of this. It's not just something that's there to entertain. Hopefully it's there to educate and change things. Uh, there's a, there's a bit of service involved with this book that, uh, I think has, has been nice, but it's, it's not at the level I want. I mean, it's always going to be relevant, a lot though. of people. Sorry. No, it's I, always what it's always going to be relevant. You know, it's not, it's not going to get dated. Yeah. I, I, yeah, no, I I agree. It's going to be relevant for for a long time. Yeah, and and that's why that's what I'm hoping that this thing has legs. Yeah, and I think it will. That uh, that's that it's an evergreen book. You know, people people can pick this up five years from now and say, "Oh my God, coaches are still morons." I, I'm hopeful that that is not the case. I'm hopeful that enough people read this where there's a cultural change that happens, especially at the lower levels of baseball. Uh, do I think that's going to be the case though? I, I wish I had more confidence in coaches and in parents, but this book has taught me that uh, change comes very, very slowly at those levels. And it's just a matter of, of word of mouth, spreading it around more and more, and people understanding that you need to read this book. I mean, don't buy it. Just go get it at the library. Pirate it online. I don't care. I just want people to read it. I just want people to understand the stakes here and and what the case really is within the sport. And with that said, though, please buy it. 
you know, let's not do the pirating. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I guess. I mean, I'm I'm not seeing any more money. <laughs> but, but no, please, please do buy it if you have. If you have, let's put it this way: if you have the ability to to lay down fifteen dollars, by all means, go ahead and do it. But if you truly are like poor and impoverished, go go get it at the library. That's that's the that's the way to do it, and I would not begrudge you one bit for doing that. As long as you're reading, I'm happy. And I didn't want to get into it because I didn't want to do anything sad. But you did an amazing job with the with the piece on the on the picture too. By the way, amazing. So, uh, Jeff, thank you, thank you. Jeff is just a brilliant writer, and his work is at Jeff Pass, and you can find links there. And Yahoo.com is where the they're posted, and of course the arm. Anything else you wanted to mention? No, I got nothing. All right. Thanks, bud. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for having me. All right. I want to thank Jeff Passon for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate that. I'm sitting in the podcast room right now and just looking at a massive pile of books. I have books everywhere. The book club has never been so busy. And uh, it's kind of fun, actually, because it's cool people writing cool books. So here's where we're at. Let me lay it all out because there's a lot of it. First of all, last week we finished TV the Book by Alan Steppenwall and Matt Zoller Seitz. That one's done. The interview with Alan is on our website, and our podcast feed, www.sports-casters.com. And, of course, on iTunes, it's on episode 27 with Kyle Brandt. Go there for that one. That one's done. The other book for September, we're going to finish right now. And that's After Further Review, My Life, Including the Infamous, Controversial, and Unforgettable Calls That Changed the NFL by Mike Pereira. Soon as I'm done updating the books, we'll take a break. We'll come back with Mike and we'll talk to Mike about this book and finish that one off. So that'll kind of get September out of the way because we need to move to October because not only did we have two books, we now have three books. So let's start with the two that came out this week. Playing Through the Whistle, Steel, Football, an American Town by S.L. Price. I finished the Pereira book yesterday, so that means I'm starting this one today. We have about 10 copies of this to give away. If you want a copy of the book, the SL Price book, let's just start with this. Email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and I will send you a copy of Playing Through the Whistle, Steal Football in American Town. Now that the book is out, we can give them away. We will do that up until when Mr. Price is on the show. And of course, you can buy that on ebook format and wherever books are sold. So, we're going to concentrate on playing through the whistle for the most part right now. And we're going to translate into another book, kind of a late ad. But we liked his last book so much, I had to do it. So, Michael Holly wrote a book called War Room, which was one of the very first book club books of the month. And we loved War Room. I still love War Room. And he has a new book out called Belichick and Brady, Two Men, the Patriots, and How They Revolutionized Football. 
And this also came out this week. And they also have copies of this to give away. So if you want to email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and tell me you want a copy of Bella Chicken Brady, I'll send you one. I don't have as many copies of Playing Through the Whistle, but I have a few to give out. So we're going to concentrate on those two in the first half of the month. And that will give way to our third book, also a football book, by one of our favorite people in the world, Jeff Perlman. That book is called The Remarkable, Improbable, Iconic Life of Brett Favre, Gunslinger. So I have an advanced copy of that in my hand. I don't have any copies of this to give out yet. Hopefully we'll get an autographed copy from Jeff uh, to give away. He's really good like that. So that's three huge football books that we have to read this month. And we'll do those back to back to back. We'll have Mr. Price, we'll have Mr. Holly, and we'll have Jeff on the show. And then also after that, then, that will give way to November. And the Book Club Book of the Month from November made some news today. And that will be the Joe Buck book. And we should have a copy of that to give away. We'll have Mr. Buck on. We'll get to talk to him. So it's packed, it's crowded, there's a ton to do. So let's clear another one off our plate and take a break and come back with Mike Pereira. All right, our next guest is from Stockton, California. And is a graduate of Santa Clara University. He's a former NFL official and, of course, the head of officials. Uh, he works for Fox Sports, where he now analyzes the officials. And he has a new book after further review. He's making his second appearance on the show today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Mike Pereira. How's it going, Mike? You are, it's going really good. It's good to be with you today. Yeah, we were joking before how we had talked once before in 2011, but neither of us can remember 2011 at this point. <laughs> I mean, I have a hard time remembering um, what I did yesterday, although I do remember every one of my miserable golf shots that I hit yesterday. It's, I think I got I to gotta switch sports, recreational sports, I think. Well, I think at this time of the year, people everywhere are thinking of their summer full of miserable golf shots. <laughs> You're looking back at your season, thinking like, "Well, how did I not get any better this year? Uh, how did I? How did I get worse? How did when I get you get to that point in your game, I guess, where you get to be, you know, of the age like I am, where you just get shorter, and it gets frustrating because all your friends seem, and the people that you play with seem to get longer, and uh, you know, all of a sudden you can't take the club quite as far back, and you can't follow through quite as much, and." Uh, so, you know, buy a whippier shaft so maybe you can get a little more torque with the club. Leave it to the equipment to, to try to get you a little bit of added length. But, you know, when you can't use that flat-faced club and put it in the hole, you're probably in pretty much trouble anyway. So time to uh, just recognize that um, that I'm just going a little bit downhill. How much NFL business is done on a golf course? Would we be, would we be surprised to know how much it actually is? I, I think you would be in my case, um, you know, because of the fact that people, at least here on the local level with me, are intrigued with what I do. And so um, within our group, no matter, you know, who I end up playing with, they always have questions, you know. Um, you know, for me, it's not, um, you know, this week it wasn't, 
you know, hey, how's Gail, your wife? It's it's tell me about the fumble in Cincinnati, and uh, you know how could how could Cincinnati? How did Duke Johnson not get that ball when he came out of the pile? You know, and so those those are the questions that um, that I do get. And then of course you write a book, and then you know all of your buddies, you know, want to kid you about what you wrote, your nicknames that you put in there, and um, and and it becomes a topic of conversation with them. So for me, I can't escape. Um, I, I don't want to escape um, either necessarily, but you know it is. It is my life, basically, not just on Saturdays and Sundays with college football and NFL football, but during the week, um, you know, because when I run into people, you know, nobody wants to talk to me about, you know, what I did prior to my football days. They're all interested in, you know, in my life based around football. So, yeah, it, it, for me, it's it's pretty much uh, it's pretty much seven days a week. You know, I think when it comes to officiating, I think every fan base, it all comes down to sort of one play in a way, it, in, a, in a macro sense. Obviously, in a micro sense from week to week, uh, it's an up and down kind of thing. But I think every fan base looks at their relationship with officials and whatever the biggest, most controversial call was in their history and if it went their way. I was thinking about this a lot and I was thinking about, I've been a big Saints fan for almost 30 seasons now. And I was thinking, like, the Saints' history with officiating is defined by the two-point conversion in the Super Bowl. Uh, the um, mm-hmm. the play mm-hmm. to, uh, it was um, Lance Moore. And right. the officials ruled in the Saints' favor. And I remember standing up the whole time in my at my Super Bowl party. I remember just standing up and saying, there's no chance it's going to go our way. There's just no chance. There's just no chance. And now Peyton Manning... He's going to go down, and he's going to he's going to get ahead of us, and we're it's just it, there's just no chance, there's no chance, and then it did go the Saints' way, it did go our way, so to speak, and when I look when I think about officials in a macro sense, I think they've done right by us because of that. You know, your point's really interesting. Um, it, it is amazing how you know, a single play out of 22,000 plays, you know, in the season, a single play is going to dictate people's memories for a long time. And and if you, you know, I'm still, I'm still to this day hearing about the Des Bryant catch, no catch in the playoffs from Mm -hmm. what, two years ago. And I still get this on Twitter every day. It was a catch. Um, I get it when I go to restaurants down in Dallas. I got stung by a bee, and in, in actually in San Antonio, I got stung by a bee this year who really got swatted. The, the people a couple next to the table that we were having dinner at, um, they were swatting with a napkin. We were sitting outside. They were swatting with a napkin to to get this bee away from them, and lo and behold, that bee that they swatted, I mean, I didn't know these people were, but it somehow got, got up underneath my shirt sleeve and um well i felt something crawling i reached in to try and then i got stung and i said to the guy i said thanks a lot you (laughs) swatted that bee and it landed in me and now i got stung and he goes and he this guy don't even know the guy and he and he says to me well you deserve it des bryant's play was a catch (laughs) you know (laughs) (laughs) you know but but you know whether it's the people in oakland that are still mad about the tuck play you know or they're still mad about the franco harris immaculate reception you know there's uh there's plays that stick with people 
um, really, I guess you could say forever that they're probably never going to let go. And like you say, you know, they're going to talk in Cincinnati about the Duke Johnson fumble probably for the entire season, for the entire rest of the season. But I, I guess that's the nature of the beast. What happened there with that fumble? Well, I, I mean, I really don't know. Um, you know, to me, it was ruled a fumble on the field, which it is. And then it went into a pile. And, you know, Duke Johnson came out with the ball really pretty quickly, you know, as they were just starting to unpile to look for the ball. And, uh, you know, you have a, a saying in officiating, you know, slow down. If you think you're going slow, go slower. And, and I think in that particular instance, it was just too quick. I mean, if uh, if you thought there was a recovery in there, I mean, in those situations, you know, you basically go survival of the fittest until you, you go in to dig until you actually find the ball and the person with the ball. And I've heard all kinds of stories from, you know, the one story saying that a player acted like he had the ball in there and in the pile. And, and so they just went too fast, I think. And, uh, you, you can't necessarily prove them wrong because you lose sight of the ball for a little bit as it went into the pile. But, you know, to me, since it was ruled a fumble and you did have a pile, dig it out, do survival of the fittest, and when someone comes out of the pile that quick, give it to give it to the person that, uh, that has it. Well, one of the things that you've been saying over and over this year is how the NFL has really stressed the idea of wanting to stick with the calls on the field, about wanting to really harp on the language of indisputable evidence. And I get that. I do. I do get that. But I feel a little bit like the reviews this year have maybe leaned on that a little bit too much, knowing that there's kind of an out there. There's kind of this like, well, we're just going to stick with the call on the field where maybe, like you said, slowing down, looking at it a few more times, looking at it a few different angles, you know, maybe using a little bit more common sense, although I guess common sense isn't supposed to be a part of it. Um, it just it seems like every time you come on TV, and you're not wrong, this year it's your, your opinion is, well, I think they're going to have to go with the call in the field here. And it's only almost making me wonder why we're even bothering with reviewing if we're just going to always go with the call in the field. Well, I think that, you know, what people lose sight of it of is is that there is a bias going into replay. I mean, people think that you go into replay and that you're somebody that's never seen the play before and you just look at it and you have no idea what was called and so you just make the decision based on that. But replay on any level has never been um, you know, based on that neutrality, so to speak. Um replay systems in any sport are built on the fact of, you know, um, the call on the field is correct. That's what your assumption is when you go under the hood or if you're in the NFL, maybe in New York, looking at the play, the call on the field is correct and you have to have clear and obvious. And that's the language that they're using now. They're kind of getting away from the undisputed. If you listen to Dean Blandino talk, it's clear and obvious. Um, video evidence that the call was wrong. And um, and so, you know, one of the problems here in replay is that it's morphed more and more into judgment calls. And, um, and, and that's 
not a good thing, I don't think. Um, we began to get into judgment calls with a a play that was ruled down, a runner that was ruled down, but in fact it was a fumble. But originally in the replay in 1999, that wasn't reviewable. Right, you Because basically the whistle ruled the client, that ruled the play dead. And then we said, well, if, even though if you ruled them down, if it's a fumble, you can you can make it a fumble and basically review the play through the whistle and give it to the team that recovered as long as it's recovered in the immediate action after the play. So here's this judgment of a time frame. What is immediate yeah. action yeah. after the play? And now it's morphed into, you know, what is a catch and what is not a catch in relationship to time? Because the receiver that's on his feet, in order to complete a catch, he has to get control first, two feet down second. And then have an element of time which allows him to do something like turn up field, um, brace himself, and be able to basically protect himself from contact from an opponent, multiple steps, all these things that are pure judgment. And so replay now is involved in that. And and I I think that the problem is is you're looking at an element of time at different speeds. You're looking at it at a different speed than the official looks at it. You're looking at it in slow motion, then real time. So they've gone to basically staying in this judgment area, staying with what is called on the field, unless it is so totally obvious that it's a mistake. I, I'm... I'm okay with that. Um, I really am. Um, I don't have an issue, uh, even though I look at it sometimes through different eyes, but I'm okay when you with staying with the call in the field. What I'm not okay is, is with changing a call in the field when you don't have um, clear and obvious evidence to overturn. Um, but I think it's it's amazing because replay, everybody thinks replay, you know, you think technology, and that's what replay is. I mean, replay came in with, you know, when it came back in 1999, you know, with all this technology, but in the end, it's still humans that are making the decisions. It's not a machine that's making the decision. So you've got, you know, human making judgments, decisions too. So um, it's never going to be, perfect in the eyes of anybody that's looking at it but it was never intended to be perfect but it was intended to correct the obvious errors but what's obvious to some is not obvious to others yeah i thought there was a really good example too on sunday uh, again in the saints and the chargers game uh the second time the chargers fumble i can't remember who it was it might have been uh benjamin fumbled i think maybe and it was kind of where he just kind of caught a pass and started to turn up field and drop the ball, essentially. No one really touched him. He just kind of almost mm-hmm. like a gift from God, throwing it to the carpet for the Saints or whatever. And I held my breath mm-hmm. the whole time waiting for them to confirm that play because I didn't think it would hold up to the scrutiny of replay. You know, sometimes things just mm-hmm. can't, almost nothing in life can hold up to scrutiny. And I just thought if he mm-hmm. gets his head in that little box and starts looking at this over and over again, I don't know if they're going to find that third element for sure. And it scared the hell out of me, and I was glad when it was confirmed and we could just move on with the ball. Yeah, well, it scares the hell out of me sometimes too <laughs> when I look at him because I don't. I sometimes don't know what they're going to do, especially in that area of, of length of time. That's difficult. 
Let's get back to to you and and your life and your book a little bit. It's it's laid out and after further review, my life, including the infamous, controversial, and unforgettable calls that changed the NFL. Do you ever wish you would have stayed on the field in the NFL a little bit longer? I mean, you write in the book about how much it meant to you to get hired by them and how important it was to have your dad in the stands to to watch you officiate. And then you're up and out after two seasons and you're 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 doing the you're doing the the suit thing. Do you ever look back and wish you would have maybe been on the field a little bit longer? No, I really don't. Um and and I base that on, you know, somebody asked me after I been in the league for five or been in the league office for five years they they asked me if um if i had the decision to make over again would i make a different decision and i said the only thing different about my decision is i would make it quicker um and that would be you know moving into the office and and uh you know the month or so that it took me to make the decision whether to do it or not i'd make it probably in five seconds because I enjoyed so much what I was doing. The thing is with me is that, I mean, I was doing really both things at the same time. When you look back at 90, 1996, my first year in the NFL was also my first year being the supervisor of officials for the Western Athletic Conference. And so my second year, same thing. So my second year on the field, second year as the administrator of the WAC program. And Ultimately, I asked myself the question, which did I enjoy more? And um, and the answer was I enjoyed the administrative side better. I enjoyed the training, um, you know, the working with coaches, the working with the media, working with athletic directors. Um, all of it I really found to be enjoyable. And that's probably why, you know, the, the league chose me you know, to be a, um, to come into the office, to be a supervisor, because I had that experience in the whack. But I, I did feel like I could make more of a difference, you know, as the director of officiating. I went in as the supervisor and then the director and then the VP, but I felt like I could have more impact in that role than I would as a side judge or maybe even becoming uh, a referee. Um, and it, 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 panned out i mean they're really i mean certainly it was a tough job it is a tough job um i i maintain it's the second toughest job in the league the commissioner's job being the toughest but it was all about my passion which was officiating so i i got to live my passion seven days a week as, as opposed to basically two days a week. And we, if you were to count Saturday preparation, um, you know, for a game on Sunday. So I, I, I'd make the decision again, clearly. I think the strength of the book or what I liked the most about it was it's really two parallel stories being told at the same time. One being the story of your life growing up, getting lost there for a little bit, not sure what you wanted to do, knowing you loved officiating, the people who helped you along the way, whether it be the people at the car lot or whatever. And then there's also this kind of evolution of officiating football and uh, the way officials have been hired, the way rules have been changed, the way the job has changed. And was that a clear, like when you sat down and you said, okay, I'm going to do this book, did you think, yeah, that sounds like fun, but I just can't see myself carrying a book. I need to get this officiating side in there. Or did you just kind of figure it worked better that way? What was it, the decision to go the two different? Well, I mean, I never really had any desire to write a book. Um, 
you know, once I got off the field and got out of New York and went to, to work for Fox, um, that's when, you know, you become involved. If you're in the media, you become involved with agents and every agent wants you to write a book. Um, and I, I just, to me, it just felt so overwhelming to think about writing a book. I mean, almost, almost beyond overwhelming. It was just like scary to me. And so I, and I really didn't have an interest in doing it, quite frankly, because, you know, every publisher says, well, you can write a tell-all, you know, a tell-all <laughs> would be great, uh, you know. And I said, what am I going to tell? I mean, if I were to write, wrote all my tell-all things that would be at all kind of controversial, it would be a 10-page a book, and that usually doesn't make for a great, uh, you know, for a great book. But, you know, I saw some others that wrote books, um, you know, Bill Polian wrote one that I got in the mail, which kind of I kind of thought to myself, you know, if he can do that, I can do it. And I just want to do it to where, you know, and when I made the decision, um, he said, I, I hope that if I write this book, that when the book, somebody finishes reading it, they put it down and whether they like it or not, I don't really care. Um, but if they can say, you know, I learned something. Yeah. I mean, I, I learned something, and 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 maybe it's how rules are changed, and maybe it's about the officials and their collective bargaining agreement and what they can and can't do. Um, you know, or maybe it's even about you know what officials go through. Then, if they just if they just said at the end, you know, I learned something, then I will feel like I have uh, succeeded. I mean, I. I certainly care to a degree whether you like the book or not, but um, it's a one-and-done project for me. I'm not an author. I mean, I'm not going to write a sequel. Um, I, I just thought, what the heck, I'll take, I'll take one shot at it, and if I, if I can change anybody's perspective on officiating, then I will have accomplished something. And I do get feedback from people that, you know, that say, you know, after reading this, I, I look at officials totally different now. And, uh, you know, I was a complainer. I'm not going to complain. Well, that's that's good. But these are all my friends that right. are telling me that. They're kidding. You know, They're I haven't, uh, <laughs> I haven't had a lot of strangers that I've talked to about it. But that's really my was my goal. Yeah, no, I've learned a ton. And, you know, I, and I learned that officials stick together too, man. I mean, you were right. You were – you were in there backing them up with 97% statistics. I mean, you were very hesitant to uh, to not – and I respect that, that you just have a lot of respect for the profession. And it really came out in the book. The sportscaster here finishing up with Mike Pereira. He's got other phones going off. He's a busy man. Uh, I know he's got other things to do. We'd love to talk to him all day. He's at Twitter. He's at Mike, P-E-R-E-I-R-A. And one of the great things about his Twitter on Sundays especially – is it's not just the 140 character tweets you get, but also the one to two minute videos uh, that can really help you understand the call. I appreciate those. Make sure you find those on Twitter. Again, the book is called After Further Review, My Life, Including the Infamous, Controversial, and Unforgettable Calls that Changed the NFL. And you can find that in ebook format and uh, hardcover as well, uh, wherever books are sold, of course, Amazon and in uh, stores. Uh, why don't we finish up on this? So now you talked in the book about how Initially, you had been against the idea of full-time officials and how you've come around over the years and you think it's it should be a full-time job. And over the last couple of years, I think the frustration has mounted a little bit about the officiating, maybe because of the uh, the, the lockout 
and the disaster that that was and maybe public sentiment just has never come back around. And I always wondered, like, I always looked out and, I, you know, everyone thinks they have the best idea ever. And I was always just wondering, like, why they didn't start recruiting college football players who weren't going to be pro football players, Ivy League football players, people who played at Vanderbilt, Stanford, wherever you want to find them, really smart kids who've played the game their whole lives and want to continue in the game and develop them through the shield of the NFL at the lower levels and bring them up along. Uh, and you'll have these officials that you trained for years that have been in the game, have a knowledge of it, are athletic, obviously, and put them out on the field on a full-time basis. And everyone thinks they have the best idea for officiating. Why isn't mine the best idea? Well, I mean, I think yours is a good idea, and I think they have started that. Um, they've started reaching out to um, some of the D3 schools. Um, I think they're not called that anymore, but um, and, but certainly some of the levels of the college football. And, and you know, um, not all players are made to be officials. Um, and and um, I, the game... The game, officiating and playing the game is so different because playing the game to me is a physical act. I mean, it's physical. Yeah. Where as, a, as opposed to officiating, that's mental. And, um, and it takes a long time, you know, to get people to get their brains uh, working to where they can make decisions based on something that they see in 126th of a second and then make that decision in a second's mm-hmm. notice. So it's, it's, really hard um and you know we most guys have officiated i mean has played the game most of the nfl officials have played the game um some at college level some at the small college at least you know most of them through the high school level so they they have some some feel um for the game but you know where did they get their feel for officiating and i found this that um that sons of former officials really were the best turned out to be the best because they grew up right. looking at the game through an eyes of an official. I did it with my dad. I mean, at this point in time, there's three Paganelli's three brothers that are in the league that are sons of a, of a terrific official. Uh, their dad was a great official on the college level and the arena league level. Um, the Bergmans, I mean, you've got two Bergmans in the league and uh, their dad was an outstanding official and they are both outstanding officials. So you get, you know, you, you really get a feel for the game when you grow up, you know, seeing it through the eyes of an official speed is overrated. The physical aspect of it is overrated. The mental aspect of it is underrated. And so to me, I always pursued the sons of ex-officials for that reason. Well, again, you can find Mike on Twitter. He's at Mike P-E-R-E-I-R-A. You can watch him every weekend on Fox Sports, uh, college football all day, and the NFL on Sunday, of course. And you can read his book again. It's called After Further Review, My Life, Including the Infamous, Controversial, and Unforgettable Calls that Changed the NFL. Thanks for doing this. we got to try not to wait five more years to do it again. I mean, a lot, yeah, that's a lot right. of at least not to, at least not to, we, we let's try to remember when the last time we <laughs> talked. Thank you so much Mike, appreciate it. You got it, my pleasure.
All right, I want to thank Josh Passan and Mike Pereira for being on the show today. Don't forget you can find this show and last week's show with Kyle Brandt and Alan Seppenwall on our website, www.sports-casters.com. I recommend you do, too. For one, I wasn't on, and it's evergreen, too. It's all... It's a good one. It's not newsy, uh, but it's cool. If you like pop culture, that's a great one. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes, Downcast, Stitcher. And if it's somewhere you want to find them and you can't, tell us. You can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. You can tweet us at sports underscore casters or at Dan Lake Sports. And there's a new project in the family. A podcast called The Lonely End of the Rink. It's a hockey podcast that I'm co-hosting with Adrian Dater. And you can find Adrian on Twitter. He's at Dater, And you can find the podcast. It's at Lonely Rink Pod uh, on Twitter as well. And it will be debuting soon. I talked about it earlier on the show. He was a avalanche what? Beat writer. Beat writer. Yeah, for years through their heyday. And now he's the lead NHL writer for Bleacher Report. Awesome. All right. All right, one last thing for me this week. Uh, I wasn't on the TV podcast there, uh, but you kind of joked that said they always end up being TV-related, and it's kind of strange, and I guess it's maybe a summer thing, but for a while I felt like I had nothing to watch, so I was like looking for things and maybe watch a little bit more movies, and now all of a sudden it feels overwhelming again. Uh, the Walking Dead, or Fear the Walking Dead, just ended, and now in a couple weeks The Walking Dead will be back, so I'll have to keep up with that. i got to get into... Uh, Luke Cage. Yeah, I heard on Netflix. On Netflix, because right. I, I like Jessica Jones. I love Daredevil. And there's a the third one coming, right? Uh, Iron Fist. Iron Fist. And then, yeah. like, The Defenders. I'm not sure what order they're going to come out in, but those have all been great. Uh, so, yeah, so all of a sudden, I got all this on my plate. And uh, I was going to ask you, do you think you have any TV shows now that maybe weren't on that list? Because they said they limited it, right? Like, it had to be. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Ones that. Didn't make the top 100 that I think will be someday. Yeah. Did you do Stranger Things yet? No, I haven't. That's probably next. Okay. I think I'm to the point where that's next on the list. I just finished a show this week. Can't think of what I finished, but I just finished one. Um, absolutely The Americans. And I know Seppenwall yeah, said that yeah, too. Yeah, did, yeah. But definitely The Americans will be on there for sure. For sure. Lock. I mean, that's in my top five now. If wow. it ended, if for some reason, they're like, hey, the people can't come back. It's over. <laughs> I would probably put it in my top 10 um and there's definitely another one what else is active westworld interests you at all that's kind of a it does one. but i'm not watching anything until one season's over yeah where is that now it just started yeah they've had only had one. Oh, okay uh maybe i'll get on board with that it sounds like i loved firefly and uh it looks kind of like that type of vibe yeah it, it, it's i think it falls into game of thrones territory that's another one that will probably be an, on that list. For you personally or? Yeah, top 100, sure. Oh, okay. Sure, you know, right, yeah. Uh, top 30 for me. Okay. 40. But I was going to say I think that Westworld, is that right? I think that's what it's called, yeah. Is going to be like Game of Thrones for me where it's the number one show on HBO, so I have to watch it. Okay. Because they do stuff so well that even it, though it's not in my wheelhouse, mm-hmm. I just I, I I get drawn to it and I get like – Game of Thrones had a produce then, and it does enough to keep me, even though it makes me feel dumb because I don't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I'm excited to watch it. But uh, I like think I for said, me- I don't watch, I don't watch a show until season two is picked up 
because I just made the mistake again with the Scorsese rock show um, with uh, Mick Jagger's nephew or yeah. with Mick Jagger's son was in it. Okay. I can't think of the name for some reason. It was about rock and roll in the 70s and I watched the whole damn season and they canceled it because it's too expensive to make. Wow. So and HBO burned me with that. They burned me with the horse show, Lucky, which I understood why they had to cancel it because like horses were like dying every other episode oh, to make I it. I did hear, yeah, yeah. But I I got boned on that one. Vegas on CBS. I mentioned that. Mm-hmm. So I'm done. I'm done watching a season one. You got to make sure there's going to be a season two before. And maybe I'll miss the freaks and geeks. But you know, five years from now, enough people geeks. will tell me that. I, that one season show I skipped is the best one season show ever. Then I'll watch it. Yeah, it feels like that's the stuff I'm catching up on now. Now, Freaks and Geeks is much older. That's like the 99 or something yeah. like that. So Early I, 2000. I, yeah. I did watch that over the summer. I watched Love, the Netflix one. That's not that old. I like Love. I think it got picked up. What do you like better, Love or Masters of None? Or have you not seen Masters of None? I haven't seen Masters of None. Yeah, I, don't, eh, I didn't like it that much. It won an Emmy. Love was quirky. Uh, it's a good wife show. Ending wife. is maybe a little storybook, but... Uh, like, for a show that's not storybook at all, the ending might be a little bit. Yeah, when he starts banging that hot girl from the set, spoiler alert. <laughs> and then she turns out to like, be kind of crazy. There's and re- no way. Really into herself. Yeah. But uh, that's good. I don't know that it would make – well, 100 is a lot of TV shows. So it yeah. might make my top 100. Uh, I think the, the big ones for me are Stranger Things and uh, the other one we just talked about. <laughs> I'm blank. Oh, no, we didn't talk about it. Silicon Valley I think would be in – definitely be high on my list yeah what did you think about our discussion about silicon valley and how i still fight for that at some point they have to have some success like at some point i'm just fucking everything up it's just getting silly i i do agree with the writer that i think you have to like that can only happen in their last show i don't think you can have like it can't happen last in the show, last eight no, last season. nine i meant last season yeah you can't have like multiple seasons of them just because then what does it turn into like entourage with nerds or something you know what i mean like uh they do kind of find ways for them to screw up. Like they need they need more bad guys or something. Like it gets a little silly. It with, does with forcing the narrative of them. Now it is a comedy. Yes. So it's, it's a little bit of leniency there in the silliness factor. But Mike Mike Judge is like really subtly brilliant. Like he's yeah. he's really good over and over again yeah. for years. Was South Park on that top 100 list? Yes. Okay, because that's, that's great, too. Like, South Park and Simpsons, I think, are the only two shows that are active that they allowed to be in it. Oh, okay. That's so good. Like, just for a show that's been along that long, they keep getting better at it. Like you, The one problem with it, and this probably isn't a problem for some, and it's not even their fault, is it's just another place that wants to shove their political opinion down my throat. Yeah, but they do a good job of making... Like the first three episodes, and they're going to end it ridiculous. You just know they are. But the first three episodes are like they make the Trump character in it. They make him horrible, but they almost make him relatable. And like he knows he's horrible and uh, he he doesn't even want to win the election. They make the Hillary character really stupid. So it's not like. Yeah, no, they're not taking a side. I don't even mean that. It's just that like I'm just I have done with politics in general. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they are the animated version to some degree of like the daily show, like they write pop culture related shows. And that's, I guess what's in every news cycle. And I'm so glad the daily show isn't on anymore. Cause that's just, it would just be one more place. For <laughs> yeah. I'd be brutal this year. They got to be kicking themselves for ending before the election. I try to watch John Oliver. Cause I think he's a funny guy. Yeah. But again, it's just like, 
I'm just worn out. Yeah, I, I prefer South Park when they're when they're willing to devote an entire half hour show like to Guitar Hero. They're yeah. geniuses. There's no, I mean, that guys, one like, Guitar Hero joke. And yeah, I mean, in the documentary about how the show comes together is six great days too. there. Yeah, yeah it's, great. it's great. But yeah, that's 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 another show that'd be up there for me. All right, one last thing for me. So radio drama sh- hit the fan this week. So. I'm excited to hear this. All right. So I've obviously always been a Howard guy. Mm-hmm. But when Howard went from four days to three, he made me find other options. Yeah. And you've been a Howard guy within reason. Like you, you understand that. Like, Oh, it's not the be all end all. No, I mean, but it's I, the best of all time. But there's other good radio. Right. And you yeah. under, like you almost kind of like seem like you dislike parts of his character. Like, oh, like you could tell he knows he's the best of all time now. Like back then it was kind of like brash and bold and now it's kind of like i'm the best of all time so i get to make a lot of money and take a lot of days off and which take, is what take, it is take instagram yeah. pictures yeah and shit. fuck around with cats and brag about all the opportunities i turned down right, I want to right. Paint. and yeah he's pretentious as i was all hell yeah yeah he won't even talk to Artie lang which is absurd and he always has been but it was kind of like cool when it was, was funny like he wasn't a billionaire yeah. yeah so eventually because I was already a serious subscriber, mm-hmm. I gravitated over to the Opie and Anthony show and grew to love it and enjoy it and enjoy bits and parts of each of the characters on there, Anthony, Opie, and Jimmy. So obviously in 2014, I sure I did a one last thing when Anthony was fired. Right. And he was exiled to his own compound network. He came on this very program, so you know he was fucked. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, so Kumia... Kumia is kind of out there, and Jimmy did something smart. He went on that show, and he did it right away because mm-hmm. he know he knew the Opie and Anthony fans and how they were, and how if it was perceived that he didn't have Anthony's back, right, there would be no coming back from that. And Opie didn't do it. So when Anthony got fired, Opie and Jimmy signed a two-year contract and have been doing radio together for the last two years. But there's been warning signs that that relationship was not made in heaven. And about six months ago, they had a huge blowout on the air because Opie deliberately booked a guest that he knew Jimmy did not want on. The guest is D.L. Hughley, I think. Is that his name? Okay, yeah. Comedian? Yeah. So that guy, D.L., had was supposed to do a show with Jimmy, one of Jimmy's pilots maybe. Okay. And canceled. Kind of screwed Jimmy at the last minute. Okay. So Jimmy said he's not going to bring him on the radio show anymore because he didn't even reach out and apologize or anything. So Opie knew this and Opie booked him and Opie made sure Jimmy didn't find out until he was already in the studio. I'm interested in in this. Keep going. I'll have a follow-up. It became a huge blowout. And you knew their days were numbered. And you knew their contracts were up in October. So September's winding down. And you're wondering, like, no one's talking, no one's saying anything. Where is this going to go? All right, before you get to that, I will ask yeah. my question because I think you're getting away from it a little bit. Okay. Whose fault is that for getting mad at that? Because the reason I'll say that it's is – It's Opie's fault because Opie did it intentionally to piss Jimmy off. But Opie does that stuff to everybody. That's kind of his character, the mean guy, and it always seems like it's okay. Like, if he did that to a caller, like – People would maybe maybe they don't love that he does it, and like you can always kind of hear like Anthony cringing under his voice when he would do something horrible to a caller or smash Sammy there was Payne's a really, guitar. There was a really funny moment. Well, okay, I don't want to give this up yet, but let's get back to that. Okay, so okay. so this 
is not unlike Opie's character. It's Fair just, enough. But Jimmy was in the crosshair this time. And he cross he did cross the line because he this guy fucked Jimmy's business. You know, fucked okay. one of Jimmy's you know what I mean? So this is too far to take this a, guy for a joke. Took a hit at Jimmy's wallet. Okay. And it's not fair that Jim now has to let him on his platform and promote his shit. Okay. And I would say that Jimmy is probably like when you talk for anyone that doesn't listen to Opie and Anthony or when it was Opie Anthony and Jimmy, like it's almost like uh it's always fun, sunny in Philadelphia where like there's almost nobody likable on that show. Like Jimmy is the closest thing to a likable Correct. guy. For as big a degenerate as he is, right. he's the most likable guy. So it gets to the last week, the second last week of September, and we know we find out that it's going to be the last week of shows, okay. of Opie and Jimmy shows. And f- the Thursday comes, and Opie doesn't show up. Opie says he's got a family emergency, can't be there, leaves Jimmy hanging. Two hours later, his pictures of him fishing on the beach. Oh, no. So you take what you want, whether there's a family emergency, who knows, right? So the following week is the last week of the contract. And Opie and Sa- or Sam and Jimmy do a morning show three days that week. Okay. And are really hinting that that might be what comes of the channel. And then, boom, the bombshell hits. Opie says, I don't work for SiriusXM anymore. I don't do mornings anymore. And I was forced out by those snakes, Jimmy and Sam. Okay. Jimmy gets on the defensive and says, whoa, hold on, Opie. You were trying to get me kicked off the this show. This is on the air. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Jimmy says, now they're opposite. They're not talking to each other. They're talking through each other. You know, Opie is sending his messages to the world through Twitter. And, okay. You know, and Jimmy's sure. responding on the show with Sam. So they're not talking face-to-face, but okay. they're going back and forth. And, o- and Jimmy says that Opie was trying to get Jimmy off the show except for two days a week and would have other people the rest of the days. Okay. So Jimmy went and said, no, I want to do mornings. I want my spot, and I don't want it with Opie anymore. And Opie said, I want to do mornings. I want my spot, and I don't want Jimmy anymore, and Opie lost. Wow. So the morning show is now Jimmy and Sam five days a week, 8 to 11. So Opie is fucked. He has nowhere to go. There's no million-dollar contracts on terrestrial radio anymore. And he, by his own admission, quote-unquote, took a haircut at Sirius XM and agreed to stay. And he's working afternoons, 3 to 6, by himself, with no money for a co-host, and only E-Rock and Paul. So a two-man staff and Opie, a 3 o'clock show in, you know, in the middle of the day. Wow. Okay, so they totally fuck him. Less, I did hear when way he, less money. I did hear a little bit of when Anthony called his program. So yeah, so the first day of the new Opie show, and he called him like afternoon guy or something like that, they, like as a joke. They call each other, right? So they're both on each other's shows, right? And the point I wanted to bring up about how you said Opie always does stuff. So Opie goes, Anthony, let me ask you a question. And there's a little bit of a pause, and Anthony's like, "Oh fuck, I thought you were gonna hang up on me." <laughs> It's like, I thought for sure you were going <laughs> to hang up on me right there. Yeah, yeah. So Opie, what came out of that is like Opie still insists that he stuck up for Anthony, although Jimmy basically said he didn't. Could, Jimmy went out of his way this week to put it out into the universe that Opie absolutely did not go to bat for Anthony when Anthony got fired. And Opie insists that he still did. Mm-hmm. But here's what we're left with. Anthony's alone on the island. 
doing his show, Compound Media, anthonycumia.com. It's a great show. Go for it. He's still there. Jimmy will come on. Apparently, Obi will come on now. Right. Who knows what the future holds for Anthony. Jimmy's doing mornings where Obi wanted to be but right. isn't for a race with Sam. Opie is in afternoons where he didn't want to be for less money without Nobody. anyone. Well, he had uh, like Rich Voss on the one. He, he's got whoever come in for the price of plugs. Wow. That's who he's got. Whoever's willing to walk into that building and work for whatever exposure that show still has. But he's on a one-year deal. And there's a lot of thoughts about Opie said, look it. I talked to Keith the Cop, who's the producer of Anthony's show. And there were offers. And Anthony insists he can afford Opie. But Opie said it just wasn't enough time that he got the rug pulled out on him so late. There wasn't enough time to really assess it. So he only signed one year with Sirius XM. They wanted him longer, but he would only sign one. Kind of betting on himself, I guess, that he could rebuild that, maybe get some money back. Yeah. But the speculation is, are we one year away from an Opie and Anthony reunion? Would that be... Go ahead, what? Would that be on Sirius? Or do you think it'd be on Anthony's compound? Probably not serious. Although, can Jimmy carry a show in a year? In a year, and it's another year that Anthony's been gone. So another year passed. In a year, do they think Opie is valuable enough, or more valuable with Anthony to bring them there? So I'm sure Anthony would go. Yeah, I just felt like that Opie Anthony show was the best when the three of them were together. There are, the the in- sum is better. Th- some of the parts is better than the yeah, parts yeah. or whatever that saying is. And Jimmy and uh, Artie Lang said this too. He said it's the best gig in the world when you can sit back and just just swing at great pitches. And it, can Jimmy carry a show? No, but Sam, Sam can drive host. it. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. And, and like I said, are we one year away from the Opian Anthony reunion? to the TV. 